Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to pick up in verse 5 this morning, and I don't know what to entitle this thing. I always have trouble with titles. Some people get a message title, and then they work a message around it. When I study, I just let the title surface. And the only thing I can see in this thing is the power of language. Let me say it different than that. The spiritual power of language. What is language for anyway? It's to communicate to others. But how do we use it in a spiritual sense as believers who love the Lord Jesus? Now, to introduce this, every time God speaks, He speaks with words that are understandable. Now, we've looked at this before. We've gone all the way through it. We went very thoroughly over it in chapter 12. If one is going to say that he's under the influence of God, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, then what he says must be intelligible and must be understandable. He must speak in a language that is understandable to others. That's the way God operates. Paul differentiates between languages, or as is translated, tongues in chapter 14, and a tongue, singular which is referring to what's going on in Corinth. As a matter of fact, the King James Version adds a word right before a tongue in verse 2, which is the little word in italics, if you have a King James Version, unknown tongue. They were doing this to try to point to what was going on at Corinth, the problem that Paul was having in dealing with these believers. Paul clearly defines the problem in Corinth as speaking in a gibberish a language that nobody understands, which is beneficial to no one. And he does this in verses 1 through 4 and then the rest of the chapter, but he also gives a solution to it. What is the solution to their problem? Their problem, the solution was to turn around and pursue love, to stop pursuing gifts. Now, when you're going to pursue love, verse 1 says, pursue love. That means you've got to pursue Christ. And you say, why do you say that, Wayne? Because there is no love produced by the flesh. God Himself, God's Spirit must produce that love. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love. And I'm not going to see that fruit produced in my life unless my pursuit, as Jared so beautifully sung, is Christ. I can't pursue anything else. I must pursue Him. And when I pursue Him and bow before Him, His Spirit produces that love in my life. Now this love has an amazing effect on a believer once it's produced in him. It gives a person a focus on spiritual things. Suddenly, the fleshly things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We begin to focus on the spiritual things of this world. Now, 
He says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. There's no word for gifts. That's in italics. The word is pneumatica. Desire earnestly spiritual things, not fleshly things. Now, once you do this, and once that love is being produced in you, you're going to seek for a release of that love. You're going to seek to get that love to somebody else. You can't contain it. You've got to release it. And the greatest way in releasing that love is by telling somebody else about Christ or the good news of His Word. Paul calls this prophecy. And that little word just throws us upside down. The word prophecy is a simple word. Prophetevo. It means to tell forth God's Word to others. So again, the progression is very clear. Paul says, I got a better way. You, you, you don't pursue the gift. Your problem is you're upside down. Turn around and pursue Christ. And then when you do, he'll produce his love in you. And this love will cause you to look for spiritual things of this world. And then you'll want to release for that love. And that release will be in telling others about Christ. Seek the giver, not the gift. This has been the theme of the Apostle Paul in the writing of this whole book. It's not any different. All the way back to chapter 1, pursue the giver, pursue the giver, pursue the giver. Don't ever pursue a gift. If you do, not only will you be distorted in your understanding of spiritual things, but you'll divide the body of Christ. Seeking Christ unifies and gives you proper doctrine that, that we all are desperate for. Now we're going to pick up in verse 5 today, and Paul just continues right on. The first thing we want to see is that Paul speaks of the spiritual purpose for all languages. I don't care if it's Romanian or Albanian or Russian or whatever it is. The spiritual purpose for all languages. Understand I said spiritual purpose. Verse 5, Now I wish that all of you spoke in tongues but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edify. <laughs> now I'm overwhelmed when I think about the fact how God has gifted many in the body of Christ to be able to speak many languages. We don't realize what we have right here. I, I don't even realize it. I know that Costello Glitchy, usually comes to the second service, speaks either five or seven languages. I know that Bob Westcott, who knows how many languages he speaks. He went to Romania for four weeks and learned the Romanian language. I mean, that's a gift. Best four years of my life was first year Spanish. I mean, some people just have a gift of other languages. You, at Dr. Zodiades, how many languages does he speak? My goodness, he lived in Egypt, went to school in Egypt, born in Cyprus. I mean, how many languages does he speak? And so there are many who are gifted to speak in other languages. They're linguistically gifted. Now, if you don't realize that God gifts people like that in the body of Christ, then immediately you're going to be a little confused when you read verse 5. In fact, when I am challenged on the subject of tongues, when I am challenged on it, this is the verse that most people take me to because they think the word tongues in verse 5 refers to an ecstatic experience that some claim to have. And they say that Paul is saying, hey, he's got it. He wishes everybody has it. But as we've shown over and over, when the word tongues is used in the plural, it refers to known, understandable languages. Now, if you'll look just carefully, real carefully, it is not as mystifying as you think it is. Matter of fact, let me read through and explain those words, and I'll show you it's not, it's not hard to understand at all. He says in verse 5, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Known languages. Then he says, But even more that you would prophesy which means that you would declare the Word of God or proclaim the Word of God. 
And greater is one who prophesies, who proclaims the word of God, than one who speaks in tongues, languages that are known. Unless, he says, he interprets it, translates what he's saying, so that the church may receive edifying. Now, what in the world could be any clearer than that? Paul, in using the word tongues in verse 5, follows the pattern that was preset in chapter 12. Remember we told you in chapter 12, this is the grid. And make sure you see chapter 12, 13, and 14 as a unit. And when you see it as a unit, it's, to me it's as clear as a bell. We make this thing so mystifying and it's not that way at all. Matter of fact, look back in chapter 12. Let's just make sure we've got this down. We've, we've already done this once, but we'll do it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. The only thing worse than having a hearing aid that doesn't work is to have a hearing aid that works better than it's supposed to. Because it, it rings, and you, you'll turn your mouth a certain way and go, you know, screeching in your head. Anybody have that trouble here besides me? Well, you need to have it. I mean, this, it'll humble you. <laughs> Every time I move my mouth, it's funny the sounds that come in your head when you have one of these crazy things. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians 12. And to another, he's, he's going through the gifts here, the different ways that God has manifested himself. And to another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. And then he changes the word another to heteros, which means another of a different kind. He says, to another, various kinds of tongues. Now, you know the word various is not there. It's in italics. But the word kinds is there. And the word kinds is the word guinea. Gene is the word we get the word genealogy from. It means the family of languages. And the word tongues is glossa, which means known, understandable language. Family of languages. So when you see it in the plural, it's referring to families of known, understandable languages. Now, this is the meaning he already has set up in chapter 12. They have the Hispanic languages, you've got the Latinic languages, you've got the Germanic languages, you've got the Semitic languages, and they're all in a certain family that can be in, translated to other people. Now, when you see tongues in the plural in chapter 12, 13, and 14, you speak of known, understandable languages. Now, Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 14, now I wish that you all spoke in languages other than your own. Now why would he wish this? Well, as, he, as you'll see from the context, what he wishes is that they had more languages in which they could tell others about Christ and his word. You say, how do you know that? Well, keep reading. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. Just speaking in another language is not enough. Why would you speak in another language? So that you could tell forth the word of Christ and the word of the gospel. Now, any language has a, that, that a Christian uses in a spiritual way has only one purpose, and that is to communicate Christ and to communicate God's word. That's when supreme, eternal good is done. That's what languages are for. That's what Paul wishes for these people. Now, he says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies. Now don't make that hard. All he says is, well, basically I'm reiterating what I just said. If you speak in a language, that's fine, and God gifts you to speak in other languages, that's fine. But greater is, the greater purpose is accomplished when you speak that language and you tell forth the word of God. Now he says, greater is the one who prophesies 
than one who speaks in tongues. In other words, just to speak in a language is not good enough. But the spiritual purpose of all languages is to speak so that you might tell forth the word of God. Then he clarifies himself. Unless he interprets. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've got to say this thing, but we're saying it about 15 different ways. Unless he translates the language he's speaking in. The implication is that if you speak in another language, make sure you translate it. And when you translate it, make sure that you're telling forth the word of God. And that is the spiritual purpose of any language. Now the fact that he's referring to using language and translating it to tell forth the word of God, it continues to be clarified in the verse. He says, so that the church may receive edifying. Now you can understand immediately that if somebody would walk into the church and speak into another language and didn't translate himself, that wouldn't do anybody any good. And if a person came in and translated himself but wasn't speaking forth the word of God, the church would not be built up. But the greater thing is when he comes and speaks in another language, translates himself or has, has it translated and makes sure that the word of God is lifted up. It causes people to be built up in the body of Christ. And Paul says it how many different ways, but he's saying that the purpose of all language, the spiritual purpose of languages to the believer is to tell forth the Word of God and the Word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some believers, as Paul, have the linguistic gift of being able to speak in other languages. And Paul says, I wished all of you had it. And if you did have it, oh, for a thousand tongues to tell forth the Word of Christ and the Word of of the gospel. So the purpose, the spiritual purpose of languages is to tell forth the word of God. That's what it's for. If it's going to accomplish a, an eternal end, then use that language, make sure it's translated properly, and get across the message of Christ and his word. That's the first thing he brings up. But the second thing he's, he does here, he draws a specific picture, a specific picture to clarify his point. It's very clear. You say, Wayne, I don't believe that's really what he's saying in verse 5. Well, that's all right. Get in line, take a number. But if you hadn't read far enough yet, come on to verse 6. If you just keep reading that to me, it's as clear as the nose in your face. Verse 6 says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you, unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Remember, languages are only in a spiritual sense, to tell forth the Word of God. Why would you want to go to any church and speak any language unless you're, you have a purpose of telling forth the Word of God? He says, if I come to you speaking in languages, what good is it? But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation? Now, he couples two things, revelation and knowledge, and then he couples prophecy and teaching. And these are very, very important and very simple to clarify what he's saying. The word revelation is the word apocalypsis. It means to uncover something in its, in its basic form. Here it means the disclosure of truth otherwise not known. No truth can be shared until first of all it's revealed. Never, when you take a language to another person and to make sure it's translated, whether you translate it or someone else translates it, it's no good un unless it's the knowledge of the Word of God. But that, that knowledge is only by revelation. He's going to put that together for you. Whatever language you, he would come to, he says, it must be for the purpose of sharing revealed truth from God's Word. Remember, the context is what's going on in Corinth. And all kinds of gibberish is being spoken. And Paul just simply says, if I walk among you, I come among you with languages, 
He says it must be with revelation. Revelation from God's Word. The truth that is known only by God's revelation. And then he adds the word knowledge, gnosis. Now, these two words are inseparable. You don't have knowledge, spiritual knowledge, unless you have spiritual revelation. One cannot know anything about God until God the Spirit reveals it to that man. That which I have been able to learn, Paul says, from God's Word, which came as a result of His revelation, that's why I would come to you speaking in any kind of language. And it's understandable to all. And as the earlier verse said, it will build up the body of Christ. And then he refers to the means by which he shares this knowledge, this revelation, this revealed knowledge. He says, whereas revelation and knowledge go together, then he puts prophecy, prophecy, with prophecy and teaching. They're, they're the means by which the knowledge is shared. The word prophecy is the preaching of the Word of God. It's to tell forth the Word of God, confronting people with the Word of God. This is what prophets do. This is, the, this is more the preaching gift. He takes the revealed knowledge and confronts people with that knowledge. The word teaching is the clarifying gift of the, re, of the revealed knowledge, clarifying whatever it is God has revealed to Paul. So Paul says, or of teaching. Maybe I come and I'm not confronting you so much with truth. I'm trying to clarify truth like he did to the Thessalonian church. But in Galatians, he confronted them with the truth. Whatever I'm doing, preaching the word, teaching the word, or both, he says, you are being benefited by whatever language I use. Because the language I use must be communicating the word of God. So the bottom line is, Whatever language you use must be a spiritual benefit to others. And the only way it's going to be a spiritual benefit to others is when it comes by revelation and knowledge, whether you're preaching it or teaching it, it's got to be substantiated in the Word of God. Language is to communicate one to another. And to communicate one to another, the thing that builds the church is the knowledge of the Word of God. This is the spiritual purpose of language very clearly illustrated by this specific illustration that Paul uses. He says, if I come to you speaking in another language, then it better be with revelation and knowledge and either by prophecy or teaching because this is what builds and edifies the church. Now, the subsequent problem is the third thing we want to look at and take a little longer to look at this morning. The subsequent problem of speaking in an unknown language. Now, this is, the, this is what happens. When you speak in an unknown language, nobody is edified. If you follow Paul's thought, the conclusion you have to come to is if you speak in an unknown language, it's a waste of time to everybody. Now, I want to say that again, and I want to say it as kindly as I know how. To speak in a language that nobody understands is absolutely a waste of everybody's time. You don't know what you said. Nobody else knows what you said. And the body is certainly not edified and built up, which is why all the gifts are given to the body in 1 Corinthians 12. And verse 7, he says in verse 7, Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. Now, how clear can the Apostle Paul be? 
Let's dig in. Verse 7, the word lifeless. The word lifeless. He says, talks about the flute and the harp or lifeless things. The word lifeless is the word that means without a soul. Asuki. Without a soul. The soul is the vital force which animates the human body. Without it, the body would be useless. And so he simply says, these are two just inanimate objects. They're just there. They're lifeless. There's no soul in them. There's no life in them. He says, yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp. A flute or a harp are not humans, but sounds are made in a flute or a harp. And he goes on to say, these sounds must be distinct and recognizable. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tone. In other words, what are you going to do with a flute and a harp when somebody makes a sound in them if it's not a recognizable sound? Paul's conclusion is that if it's not recognizable, it's just useless noise. Remember back in chapter 13 and verse 1 when he says, If I speak in these tongues and how to have love, I'm an irritating noise. It's a very similar thing here. And what he's saying is the sounds have got to be recognizable. Or if they're not recognizable, if they're not distinct, then they don't fit. And they're useless and cause only confusion and irritation to people's ears. I've told you many times that when I was growing up, I'm really cultured more than you think I am because I was the usher for the Roanoke Philharmonic Orchestra. And those were my classical days. That's why I like classical music. Nobody in my family likes it but me. Everybody likes something else, but I like classical music. And I, I'm the, when I turn it on in the car, you can hear the sides of that suburban just, just bouncing in inside because I like to be right in the middle of it. So I have it as loud, and normally I don't have my hearing aid on when I'm listening to it, so it's really loud. And I love classical music. I could take the orchestra parts of it. I just couldn't take the ballet. I couldn't stand men wearing tutus. Somehow, that's about as bad as living on Queen's Lace Trail. I could not get the two together. I, something's not right. <laughs> that's where I live now. Boy, I'm sad about that address. But you know, when you'd watch an orchestra warm up, they made some uncertain and sound, sounds, sounds that were not distinct. As a matter of fact, if you've never heard an orchestra warm up, my friend, you, you wouldn't pay money to go hear them if you're doing, just going to listen to them warm up. I mean, bleep, blat, bleep, bleep. And you think, bleep, 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 and it just drives you nuts. And you're thinking, what in the world are they doing? I can do that. Give me an instrument. I can do that. Their sounds are indistinct. But I'll tell you what, when that old boy walks up, taps on that podium, and all of them take those instruments up, suddenly they become distinctable, distinct sounds, distinctive sounds. And all of a sudden, you can understand what they're doing because it's a melody, it's a harmony. They fit, they fit, and they make sense when they're played. They don't make sense when they're just over here somebody blowing through an instrument. That's what he starts off by saying. He said, hey, even you take something that doesn't even have a soul to it, let's just pick a flute and a harp. They have sounds, but if those sounds are indistinct, what good is it to anybody? It's just useless noise. He goes on in his illustration. Verse 8, he says, For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? Uh-oh. The trumpet, or the bugle, although used in orchestra and bands, was also used in military campaigns. Now, you know, anybody that's been in the military knows of the bugle <laughs> or the trumpet. And you know how it has certain sounds for certain things that you do. When I was in military school, I used to love the one at night, taps. I liked that. It means go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. <laughs> but then you have another sound that it makes in the morning. Get out of your bed before I'm going to whip you or whatever. I mean, you don't want to get up. 
I hated the one in the morning. Matter of fact, when we were in military school, somebody, it was by record. They put a record on. They didn't have an actual bugler. So uh, we uh, changed the record one morning. But anyway, that, that caused a lot of confusion. <laughs> I'd rather not go any further with that. But it, it caused a lot of confusion in our campus because the bugle has to make distinct sounds to cause people to do certain things. Now, how in the world can anybody miss this? He says, if it doesn't make a distinct sound, people won't know what to do. In Paul's day, the trumpet was used in battle. And it was a, it was a communication between the commander and the troops. They didn't have radios like we have today. They didn't have all this other technology. But out on the field, they had a bugle. And that bugle communicated a message from the commander to the people that were, that were the troops. And if the call was uncertain, then disaster would be the result. So Paul says, hey, you look at the flute or the harp, if you're going to just blow through it, all you are is an irritating, useless noise. And if you've got a bugle and it doesn't make a distinct sound, then it's going to cause all kinds of confusion in the people that are listening to it. Now you see where he's headed? This old, this rascal was a great lawyer, wasn't he? He just builds his case to the point that you say, you almost want to quote the next verse before you get there because you know where he's headed. Then he says in verse 9, so also you. Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Now, why is it that people won't study chapter 14, but they'll study chapter 12? And here's as clear as anything else. The word clear there, speech that is clear, is made up of two words. It means uh, good or well, F, and then the word sema, which means sign or a mark of something. And, but the word for speech is the word logos. Now, we've been over this how many times since chapter 12? Logos means intelligible, understandable, thought through words. And he says that we must utter by our tongue an understandable, intelligent words that become a sign. Our speech needs to be a sign that points to something that is understandable, something that can be intelligently understood. Every word we say, regardless of the language we choose to use, whatever it is, must be a sign that points to Christ and points to the understanding of who he is. If the flute and the harp, even the trumpet, must utter sounds that are understandable, how much more our words that we speak. And then in verse 9, So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken for you will be speaking into the air. Now back in chapter 12, I showed you the different words for speaking, and it's so clear, particularly in verse 3 of chapter 12, this is the word laleo. He changes now. And he says, all you're going to be doing is making noises in the air, and it doesn't benefit anybody. Now that's his point. In verse 10 he says, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning. In other words, Paul says, I don't know them all. But as far as I, I, my travels, he, had, he, he spoke in tongues, languages more than they did. And he had to because there were more dialects in his day than there are even today in that part of the known world. And he says there are many, many languages in the world. And it basically, what I get out of it, he said, pick one. Just pick any of them. But whatever language you pick, every one of them has meaning to it. So why would you say the Holy Spirit would author an experience in your life in a language that nobody can understand and nobody can interpret? Why would you say that? When all the languages that are in this world 
have a meaning which means people can understand what is being said. And then verse 11. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian. <laughs> and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Now that word barbarian here is used frequently, well not frequently, four or five times, but it's the word that means that, that I don't have the Greek language. In other words, if somebody came in and spoke a language to me, I would be a barbarian to him because I wouldn't know his language. Or if I spoke to somebody in a language they didn't understand, I'd be a barbarian to them. You see, I was over in Greece with Brother Spiros. Rick was there that year. <laughs> and I was speaking to Greeks. I don't know why I didn't think I was speaking to Greeks. I was in Greece. I'm a little slow. And I was telling them, I said, there, there are two words for life. They would say, zoe and bios. There's no B in their modern Greek pronunciation. And I, I said, there are two words for life. And everybody perked up. They waited for me to say it. And I said, zoe and bios. <laughs> and they all just died laughing. And I didn't know what they was laughing at until afterwards. And they came up and said, Wayne, we got to have a name for you. And I said, what? Wayne the Barbarian. <laughs> and they called me Wayne the Barbarian all the rest of the week. Why? Because I didn't seem to understand their language well enough to speak it like they spoke it. And that's what Paul says. If I'm going to come and speak to you and you don't understand me, I'm a barbarian to you. I don't have your culture. I don't have your language. I'm of no use to you. And if you come and speak a language I don't understand, you're a barbarian to me. I don't understand you and everybody's confused and you certainly are not benefiting the body of Christ. Verse 11. Again, if then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Then verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts. <laughs> and that was their problem. He said, okay, I, I, I'll take that zeal any day of the week. Well, let's get it pointed the right way. Seek to abound to the edification of the church. Whatever you're gonna seek, if you take all that zeal, Put it over here and start seeking to edify the church. And if you do that, you're going to speak in a language they can understand. It'll be with revelation. It'll be with knowledge. It'll be through prophecy. It'll be through teaching. And they will be built up. But this other stuff is nothing more than a useless sound, just like it could be with a flute or a harp or a trumpet, if it does not give a distinct sound so that it communicates perfectly to those who hear it. That's his argument. You want to pursue something, he says, pursue edifying the body of Christ. Now, I'll tell you what, folks, I, this, has been, this has been a difficult task walking through this. I'll be honest with you, because I know there are people out there, and I know that we're being televised, and I watched it last night. I don't watch it very often, but last night I did. I hate watching myself preach, and it just bugs a stew out of me. But in watching it last night, I thought to myself, man, how would I feel if I'm out there and don't know where Wayne's coming from? And I, I'll just be honest with you, I had to pray a lot after I watched it last night. I don't know if I'm doing it right. I don't know if I'm doing it wrong. I guess what I'm trying to do, and I said it last week, and I'll say it again this week, is stand out in the middle of the road and wave a red flag and say, folks, be careful, be careful, be careful. Why would God the Holy Spirit, who always communicates in language that we can understand, why would he give you the experience of speaking in any language that not only you can't understand, but no one can understand? Why would you tag this to him? What good does it do to the body of Christ? What good does it do for you other than an emotional edifying experience at that particular moment? It does absolutely no good. It's useless. 
just like the warming up of instruments before they play in an orchestra. It's just useless noise. Now I know I'm walking on some people's experience, but folks, let's just walk on somebody's experience. At least I'm going to make you think. If I can just make you think, I'll accomplish what I wanted to do. I was in Salt Lake last week, and many of you prayed for me, and I asked you to pray for those 200 people coming from Wyoming. <laughs> I got there, and they just had to laugh. They said, the people who signed up meant to put two, but they put 200. So we only had two from Wyoming, and they did make it. So your prayers were 200 times answered for those two, 100 times for those two. <laughs> but we did have a bigger conference than we've had yet, and we did see some wonderful things. They say next year, they, they're really looking forward to that. It takes a while to build a crowd in, in that part of the world, particularly when you're in the Mormon. Uh, they, they dominate that place, folks. Well, Stephen called me Sunday, Monday afternoon, 4.15, said, Dad, you care if I fly over? And I said, well, have you got any money? And he said, no, but I got a free ticket. I got it off of Southwest somehow. And I said, well, good, come on over. So 4.15 he called me, 7 o'clock he was in our service. That's how quick he got over there. And he stayed for the service. We went out to eat that night. Next day, we, we had a great time together. And after the, after the morning session was over, he went skiing, that sucker. But after the morning session was over, he said, Dad, let's go down to the Mormon Temple Square. I've never been there. Well, I've only been around it. Have you ever been there? Anybody here ever been there? Taking the tour? Have you taken the tour? They took us on the tour. Well, this was interesting. I didn't want to go on the tour. I didn't even want to go down there. I just wanted to drive around. Let's go back home. I want to take a nap before I spoke. I spoke five hours a day. and He about wore, wore me slap out on Tuesday. Stephen's that way. He's just all energy. So we went down there. He said, let's take the tour. Come on, Dad. Let's take the tour. And I said, all right, but I'm not saying anything. I'm not down here to, to come against Mormonism. I'm not down here to, to embarrass anybody. I just want to go back and take a nap, Stephen. <laughs> he said, okay, Daddy, you don't have to say anything. We walked out, and they told us to wait right here in this particular place. They would bring some, some gals over who were sisters, sisters, two sisters, one from Austria, one from Arizona. And they came over, they were on their 18-month, uh, whatever they call it, they go there for 18 months and whatever, and then they go back. And so they came up, and they didn't have a group, they just had me and Stephen. <laughs> you know, they didn't have a clue what they were about, they were in for. Stephen's in seminary, and you know what we do, and so I, I say, this is going to be interesting. And they started, they took us inside to the, to the, first of all, the visitor center. And they walked us over, and here's the Book of Mormon. And we could see the temple. Nobody can go in the temple. You can go in the tabernacle where the Mormon tabernacle choir sings and all, but you can't go in the temple because the temple is only for their people, and it's all a secret to things to that thing. So <laughs> we're standing there, and this lady says, Now, do y'all know what that is right over there? And Stephen said, That's the temple. And she said, Good. You know a lot about Mormonism. I'm thinking, oh, That's not really hard to figure out. I could have told you what that thing is. And she said, Well, son, why do you think we have a temple in today's times? And Stephen said, well, I guess you're trying to copy them in the Old Testament because they had temples in the Old Testament. I guess that's what you ought to do. And she said, that's good. You know a lot about the Old Testament. Is that right? He said, well, I know a little. <laughs> she turned at me, and I'm thinking, oh, dear God, please. I, all I wanted to do was take a nap. And she said, what do you think, sir, about having a temple in these days? I said, well, personally, I think that's a little ridiculous to have a temple. She said, why is that? I said, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, what? No, you not. You are the temple of God. I said, Christ lives in those who have put to cast their faith into him. He comes to live in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. I said, he told the woman in John 4, it didn't matter where you worship. If you worship in spirit and in truth. And she said, hmm. 
She said, what do you think about having prophets in a modern day? And I'm thinking, please, ask Stephen, man. I'm just standing here. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you want a prophet for? Because Ephesians 2.20 says our faith is built upon the faith of the, by the apostles and the prophets. And I said, if that's our foundation, what do you need another prophet for? I said, we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. And I said, he's the one who reveals truth out of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. She said, well, what do you think about living in a new covenant, I mean, in a covenant in these days? And I said, well, that's a good thing you ask. I said, Hebrews 8, 6 says that there was fault with the first covenant, therefore we're in a better covenant that Jesus inaugurated when he died on the cross. And I said, this is the new covenant, and it was inaugurated at Pentecost when the Spirit came to live in us. She said, well, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you think he is? Gosh, I said, he's the pre-incarnate Son of God, always has been Christ. I said, he, without him, nothing would have been created, John chapter 1 and verse 3. And I said, the only reason he had to come was because in Genesis, the third chapter, Adam sinned and lost the life of God, but Jesus came to give it back. And I walked her from Genesis all the way to the, the New Testament. And she said, boy, you know a lot about the Bible, don't you? I said, well, it's a great book. <laughs> you know the saddest thing? Well, Stephen, matter of fact, she said, have you ever, son, she turned to him immediately. She left me alone. But she didn't realize Stephen's more of an apologetic than I am. I mean, he, he attacks stuff like that. I mean, I'm not that way. I mean, if it comes to me, I'll answer it. But Stephen goes looking for it. And she said, son, what do you think about the Book of Mormon? You ever read it? He said, well, I've read enough about it to know what it's in. And she said, well, what, what any questions? He said, absolutely. He said, you speak of a lot of cities, ancient cities in the Book of Mormon. He said, can you show me where the excavations are, where they've discovered those cities, that I, that I might go visit them? You see, he had already understood that Tom Ferguson was funded by the Marriott Hotels uh, to develop an apartment of archaeology at Brigham Young. And in 30 years of archaeology, wrote a letter to the Mormon church one year before he died, and they blackballed him and said there is not one shred of evidence that any of these cities ever existed on the face of this earth. He knew that. And the lady said, well, they're old cities, and we don't really know where they are. Stephen said, that's odd. He said, the cities of the, of the New Testament and the Old Testament, even B.C., have already been excavated and we can go visit them. I just wonder why you can't go visit these. And on and on. It, got, it, got, it went downhill from there. I mean, it got to where, this is a building here, this is a tree, this is grass. Thank you for coming. <laughs> and honestly and truthfully, I did not go with that in my heart. Stephen didn't go with that in our heart. We were just curious as to what was down there. But I want to tell you something. That young lady stood there and she said, gentlemen, she said, you don't know what we've experienced by being in the presence of our prophet. And I said, is that right? She said, when I walk in the presence of that prophet, it's the greatest spiritual, emotional experience I have ever had. I said, what's that experience like? She said, I'm so overwhelmed with peace. Now listen to me. I am so ecstatic in his presence I know that this experience is from God. And I thought to myself, I have heard that very same thing said by people who say speaking in an unknown language is from God. And here's a person that doesn't even believe in Jesus Christ that you believe in, folks. Jesus and Satan were brothers and the, he had to come and do, you don't know much about Mormonism. If you never you know, get a hold of it, friend, they're going to have about 20 million of them by the year 2000. They're spreading like wildfire. It's a cult and it's false. 
But that gal stood right there with tears in her eyes and told me that's the greatest experience she, she had ever had that God gave to her when she stood in the presence of their modern-day prophet. And I thought to myself, experience, experience, experience. But what does the Word of God say? If I can just get you to think, that's what Paul's trying to do. Why would you want to speak five, 10,000 words in an unknown language? Paul said, I'd rather have five words any day of the week because of that is what edifies and builds up the body of Christ. And folks, it's not going to get any better. The, the chapter just digs deeper and deeper and deeper. We've got 40-some verses before this is over with. I told you back in chapter 12, he's going to nail it in chapter 14. Well, we're here, and he's nailing it. If you speak under the influence of the Spirit of God, you better know what you're saying and you better know that if it's, gonna, if it's a gift given by God, it's going to edify the believers and the only thing that edifies them is revelation, knowledge, prophecy, teaching, which comes from the Word of God. <sighs> I'll be glad to get to chapter 15. That's a chapter on death. <laughs> Maybe God will just take us all out of here. <laughs> we can understand where we're going. Not easy, folks. It's just not easy. Because there's too many people out there that said, I don't like him because he says my experience is false. No, I don't. I'm just saying, whatever experience you've had, you better run it by here. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.